Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 3. We'll continue our study with verses 9 through 20. If you're new to our church, you may not know the custom that we have, and that is going verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. And this is a commitment that we have because we believe that God ordained not only the words of the scriptures, but also their order, and that every word of scripture is good for the people of God, that we might be taught, that we might be confronted, that we might be rebuked and corrected. We've studied Romans chapter 1, where Paul introduces himself once again to the church at Rome, but then begins to consider the waywardness and the sinfulness of mankind. He begins with the Gentiles, then in chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, transitions to the religious Jews of his day. And this has been called Paul's great discourse on the doctrine of sin. And the thing that I want to make clear to everyone is this. Paul does not teach on sin to point a finger at the offender but rather to shine a light on the souls of humanity, a light of Scripture, so that we would see our sinfulness, our guiltiness, not to be overwhelmed with sadness, but to see our need of Jesus and to receive him and to run to him as the Savior of sinners. And so we pick up there, and this morning in these verses we will conclude this great discourse on sin and continue as Paul opens the free offer of the gospel in the coming sermon in two weeks. So the word of God, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, this is God's holy and inerrant word. What then? Are we Jews any, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's holy and inerrant word. May he add its truth to our minds its conviction to our hearts, and bring us into the comfort of the gospel through its testimony. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, 
We come to your word again. And Father, there are heavy, hard charges, not just against other people, but against each and every one of us found in the scriptures here this morning. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us stillness. Oh, Lord, help us that we might not reject a clear reading of this important passage of your word. Lord, help us to receive the conviction, the heavy weight of what the Bible accuses us of. Oh, Lord, that we might see our need for Jesus and run to him. Oh, Lord, that we might find in him a loving Savior willing and happy and joyful to receive us. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. A good argument, a gospel argument, does not attempt to discredit an opponent, nor does it attack them, but rather it works to make the truth clear. And to make the truth inescapable to the person that hears the word of God. You see, the goal is not to win the argument, but to win the man, to win the woman, to win the child. To convince not of the things that we think or the things that we say or the standards that we hold, but rather to convince and to display the simple testimony of the scriptures. Now I don't know if you've ever had an argument with a Christian. Maybe you had an argument with a Christian at the beginning of your walk with Christ. Or maybe even as a Christian you've argued with Christians. Or maybe you can examine yourself and simply say, I'm guilty of arguing with the attempt to discredit or with the attempt to simply win the other person. But the biblical model is different. And this morning, as Paul closes his argument or his discourse on the doctrine of sin, we have laid before us a good example. Because Paul makes this argument like parallel lines that form a path for a person. And he's inviting people to walk down the path. And progressively, step after step, inch after inch, the path narrows and narrows and narrows and narrows like a funnel to bring into view the inescapable truth of the need of every man, every woman, and every child for faith and salvation in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And again, his central truth, the thing that's at the end of the path, the thing that he wants them to see is this. That all people, both Gentiles and Jews, are sinners. And that ultimately all people are guilty before the righteous God of heaven. And that all people need a Savior. And that all people are freely offered that Savior, that salvation in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And so this morning, as we look at the passage of Scripture, I want us to see three sections. In verse 9, the first, and that is the terrible reality. Verse 9, 
the terrible reality. In verses 10 through 18, a terrifying mirror. A terrifying mirror. Verses 10 through 18. And then the third portion in verses 19 and 20, the true testimony. The true testimony. So far, again, let me remind you as we've been with Paul, as he's written, he's written boldly, he's written clearly. He's written in terms that are not popular, that are not political. He says things about people that do do not affirm who they are and their own identification, that things that do not affirm uh, their lifestyle, things that rather bring conviction. But I just want to say that Paul is, in this passage and in these chapters, an equal opportunity offender. He doesn't seem to have a heart to discriminate against one or the other. He is, however, real. It's sober that the world of Gentiles or all other people who are not derived from amongst the chosen people of God, the people of Israel, that they have a different life and a different standing and different opportunities from those who are among the people of Israel. After all, the Gentiles don't have, and didn't certainly in this day, a free access to the revealed word of God. The scriptures hadn't been translated at any great length. They didn't know the law. They didn't know the teachings. They didn't know the character of God except what could be understood about him. In chapter 1, Paul writes that Gentiles, or the rest of the world, suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. That what can be known about God, it's plain to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, His divine attributes, that these are all clearly perceived. He's saying that nobody stands and simply says, I see no evidence for a God, or that God exists, or that God is holy. Rather, he is saying people clearly perceive it, and that with sinful hearts, they suppress that truth. Paul goes on in chapter 1 and says this, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. But they exchanged the glory of God for idols. That's what he has to say about the Gentile world, about everybody else. And then in chapter 2 and going into chapter 3, he touches his finger upon the Jewish people. Those within the chosen number, those who have received the covenants and circumcision, who have walked with God and had his presence. The one who have, the ones who have had exposure to the prophets and the preaching and the teaching. And specifically, he puts his hand upon false securities that they entertain about their standing with God. He says... Though they have received the law, they have not kept it. Though they have circumcision in the flesh, they nullify it by an unholy heart that doesn't keep the law of God and by a faithlessness. He says, though they have had promises and the testimony of prophets 
they have taken up the heart of faithlessness and denied the truth of God and been disobedient to the commands of the scriptures. And so you can see the Apostle Paul is not running for office. He's not trying to be popular. He's simply recounting the truth of God to any who would receive it so that they might know their need of Jesus. And so we come to our verses of Scripture this morning, to verse 9, where Paul asks rhetorical questions. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And the answer that he gives, he's comparing, obviously, the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And here Paul gives testimony to what is the terrible reality of the state of humanity. Let me read it to you once more because he's so painfully clear. All, that's all people, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles or the rest of the world, read it under that heading because that's what he means. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And so the first thing I want you to see about the terrible reality is that Paul says this, nobody is excluded from sin in its effects and the way it changes how we identify ourselves and the way it affects our minds and the way we stand before God because of it. All, all people, every man, every woman, every child, with no respect to cultural or religious identity. Every single person that has ever been and ever lived is touched by the effect, the guilt, the stain, and the offense of sin. So this again confronts the question, if there's a man on a desert island never heard of the things of God, in the deepest jungle on any continent on the planet, or in the coldest place in the north or in the south. He's in a cave. She's in a cave. They've never heard of God. Are they accountable to the Lord? Do they offend Him? How is it possible? And Paul says, yes, they even also are included in that number. They all, we all, have offended the holy God of heaven. Even the religious ones, even the ones who have received and who have known and who have read and who have memorized and the people that were in the pews of the ancient synagogue or the pews of the church today. All people, every man, every woman, every child in this room, in this pulpit, every one of us, without exclusion, stand on shaky and dangerous ground a people guilty for the God of heaven. But the way he describes it, he doesn't just say that all people are offenders, that all people have provoked God 
He says specifically all people are under sin. Hupo hamartias. What does that even mean? It means that all people are in submission. All people are under sin's rule. They are subjects to sin in thought, in word, and in deed. So that we're slaves to it, like we're locked in chains. That's how he's describing this. That's the portrait and the picture. We're under it, and it is our master. Without exclusion. And I just want to simply say that is hard news. That's a terrible reality. What person wants to be a sin? What person uh, wants to be a slave? What person wants to be uh, beholden to something and controlled by something like that? Nobody does. But Paul says that's the terrible reality. That our minds naturally think the things of sin that our hearts naturally delight in the things of sin that our words are naturally toned by the things of sin and given their accent that our deeds pursue sin and the offense of the God of heaven but the greatest thing that should be understood from what Paul says here is that if sin is an offense against God then that means that all people of their own of their own works, of their own thoughts, of their own hearts, are enemies of God in need of a Savior with a desperate situation that puts them at odds with a God who is powerful. The terrible reality, the first thing that Paul lays down, it's a charge, legal in its nature, in verse 9. Then in verses 10 through 18, we transition and Paul builds the argument. And what does he do in verses 10 through 18? Well, he goes to prove his point by pointing to something else, someone else, and their testimony. And the thing that he points to is the expert critique of the scriptures. That's what he does. Verses 10 through 18, it's just a recitation, a rehearsal of what the Bible says about the heart, the mind, the words, the deeds of humanity. In fact, he even cites at least ten different verses of Scripture. And I'll read them out to you and we'll study them. But I want to say to you the reason that Paul does this, it's not so he can beat people up. Uh, It's not that he's putting us down. It's not that he's standing over us and, and judging us. He's holding up a mirror. Do you understand what I mean? He's holding up something that's going to reflect back to you your likeness. These verses say things about you and about me. That's what they're concerned to do. And they don't say very nice things. It's like an x-ray, a spiritual scan of the soul. And it reveals cancer and it's widespread and terminal. So let's read these sections together. Verses 10 and 11, 
Paul touches on what we call the noetic or the intellectual or the mind's effect from sin, a noetic effect of sin. And here he cites Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 53, uh, 1 through 3 as well. And he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Again, there's the theme, and it's a biblical theme, not just Paul's theme, but the theme of non-exclusion. They're all people accountable to this and the testimony of the book of Psalms, this wonderful book of the affections of the soul of God's people. And what does it have to say about the soul's state? And it's this, no one is righteous. No, not even one. And no one understands the things of God. And this is the psalmist even himself regarding his own mind and his own heart and his self, himself. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. That the mind is geared towards the offense that is committed against God. It's not that we're spiritual people, that we're pursuing God, and that we have an intellectual atheism, but rather the mind is altogether overwhelmed with the weight of sin. It's even more desperate than we figured. This means that faith is so much more than a rational undertaking that a person just needs to understand here and get it to the heart. Oh, it's way worse. You need something so much more than just simply a good, rational, logical argument for a person to seek the Lord and to then be turned to Him. In verse 12, we read, All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. At the deeds of people, all of them, even when we intend our very best, are still self-serving in essence. Again, I want to say this isn't Paul judging. It's the testimony of the word of God. And he's simply just pointing it out. He's saying, look, see, judge for yourself. How often are the things that you do geared toward what you would like to receive? The things that you do geared towards freedom from hell? The adoration and approval of a friend, of a neighbor? Of a co-worker. Deeds not derived from a heart of love to God. Verses 13 and 14. Paul turns and begins to focus on scripture. That touches upon the organs of speech. (laughs) Sort of a strange way to say it. But in verses 13 and 14. He cites a number of portions of scripture. That speak about the throat. About the tongue. About lips. And about the mouth. And it's a great emphasis. 
And it's because it seems that the the mouth or the words, the spoken testimony of humanity is itself likewise touched by and affected by and corrupted by the sinfulness of our minds and our hearts. He cites Psalm 5.9, if you're a note taker, Jeremiah 5.16, Psalm 143, Psalm 10, verse 7. And this is what it says. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Every word, everything we say is corrupted by sin and sinfulness. It's as simple as that. We sang uh, the first portion here in, in the fifth psalm. Their throat is an open grave. Where's it going? The words of sinful men, well, they go to an end and the end is death. They use their tongues to deceive. They're always full of lies and lying to mislead, to trick, and to serve their own ends. The venom of asps is on their lips. If you trust anything they say, it's liable to be to you poison. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Rather than the praises of God and the sweetness and the kindness that ought to be heard, what is it? It's bitterness. It's curses. In verse 15 through 17... We have a section that touches upon the lifestyle. And the the picture that we're given has to do with feet or paths or ways. I've been astounded just how many words in the German language have to do with a road or pathway. All sorts of different things like that. A highway and all the differences there. But here that's the, the depiction. It's where your feet go. You know, it's a journey, it's the things that you're doing, the lifestyle, the, the manner in which you live. That's really what it's touching upon, the pathway. And he cites Proverbs 1.16, Isaiah 59.7. And in verse 17, he has some awareness, it seems, of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 79. And so let's read 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. <laughs> it's the picture of violence. What's the lifestyle of a sinful person? That's a violent one. One that sheds blood. The very life force within a man that keeps him on physical feet. Verse 16. And their paths are ruin and misery. There's nothing good coming from it. And the way, verse 17, of peace they have not known. That's that cited verse from the Gospel of Luke. Again and again and again. It's the lifestyle. It's not just one thing they did. It's not one thing that we have done, that our hearts have done. It's, it's the problem that sins in the mind. It's in the heart. It's in the deeds. It's in the way we live. And we even have a culture of it. It's not just that thing we did that one time in that summer where we made a bad decision with him or with her. It's not just the moment where we had an unfaithful gaze. It's not just the moment when we said a specific thing. It's, it's the whole thing. The whole of us as people. It's invasive. And that's why this is a terrifying mirror. This is just the scripture saying here is a depiction of the soul of every person. 
In verse 18, there's this conclusion to the portrait. And I believe in this section he speaks about the affections. And the manner in which he does it is he, he talks about the eyes. The thing that, that a person sees. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so this is this picture of a person, man, woman, or child, that whenever they look at life and they look on the horizon, there's never a consideration of how does God think of this? Never an anticipation that righteous wrath may come or that this is an offense or any concern for him. It's a heart that lives fearlessly and that dives all the way in to a life that is contrary and offensive to the God of heaven without a thought of him, without a concern regarding him. Psalm 36, verse 1. One more cited text for Paul. But I want you to see something. Verses 11 and 12, none, no one, all. Verses 13 through 18, there, there, they. Those come together and it's not about everybody else. This is a testimony against all of us. The religious and the non-religious alike, every single human being on the face of the planet the reflection is terrifying. Verses 19 and 20, Paul gives us what is a true testimony. And you may be able to see your Bible may give you clues in the way your, your page is arranged. There's a transition. It certainly is thematic. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so Paul returns again. And it's like the last stronghold. This is where the person who's listened to the whole thing and heard all of the testimony might then put their hand up and say, but Paul, but Paul, look at everything I did. Look at this big list of church services I've attended. I was baptized as an infant. I was baptized by profession. I was baptized 14 times. Look at what I did. I gave to the church thousands of dollars. I gave to the world millions of dollars. Look at my deeds. I want to share with you an illustration that comes in the form of a quote. Americans may know the name. International folks probably not. The name Michael Bloomberg. He was a former mayor of New York City. And uh, some years ago, I believe it's 2014, he was interviewed by a, uh, a journalist regarding his recent gift of $50 million to um, a gun control advocacy group. 
And he says regarding that giving, $50 million, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close, he says. What's the cost for Michael Bloomberg and his mind and his soul to enter into eternal rest and a life reconciled to God? It's $50 million. That's it. It's the things he's done. And if I ask you this morning, if you were to meet God and you're face to face with him, and I just want to say that in this second, it's maybe rhetorical, but it's an absolute certainty in the day to come. You will meet your God, whether you want to or whether you don't. And the review of your soul is had. And if he were to ask you a question, why should you enter into rest? Why? Why should we be reconciled? What will you say? Look at what I did. Look at my religious life. Look at the prayers that I said. Look at how many times I took the Lord's Supper. Look at how many times I thought about sinning, but I didn't actually fool with it and didn't do it. Would you look God in the face and simply say, I'm telling you I deserve it? Or will you review your soul by the testimony of God that he's given in the scriptures? Because Paul says, according to the law, and it seems he has the whole Old Testament in view here, All of its teaching, its moral teaching, its spiritual teaching. He says that the law speaks to those who are under the law. You may ask the question, well, who is that? Well, Paul characterizes it as every mouth. The law speaks to every single person so that it may close our mouths from that sort of defense. My mouth... Mouth, mouths of my little boys, the mouths of every person that's ever been. Furthermore, he says that those who are under, law, under the law are the whole world. Why? So that we may be held accountable to God. And then he says definitely in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight through works, through deeds, no one can measure up. Why? Because the law and through its testimony comes the knowledge of sin. You see, it has this work like a mirror to show you your soul. What's the problem? You and I and every person are desperately at odds with God. Without question, without exception, and with no defense. And so you feel Paul's argument and the parallel lines on either side of the path are converging. And it feels like you're getting squeezed and placed in a corner and it's getting stronger. 
And you may find yourself with me this morning simply saying, I'm backed into a corner. What can I do? I feel the desperate circumstance of my life and my soul and my mind and my mouth and everything that I do. What do I do? This is terrible if what you're saying about God is true and that my sins make him my enemy. What can I do? And that's exactly how we're supposed to feel this morning. Because the answer, as Paul's going to give in the coming verses, and then I'll go ahead and give you this morning, is this. You need to do nothing except put your faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing. You don't need to clean it up. You don't need to think right. You don't need to tithe right or attend right. You don't need to make buddies with the pastor as if I've got some kind of miraculous power for you or anything of the sort. You need to simply say, I need a Savior and I put my faith in Jesus. Nothing else. Faith requires of you nothing except hope that Jesus has done it all. That's it. And that's the offer to you this morning. If you have never known him, we don't want your money. We just want you to know Jesus and the peace that's had through him and his cross, the one who died for you. We don't need your sincerity. We just simply want you to know the Savior of sinners, that you might be right next to us on your knees before his cross and say, that's my hope. I'm safe and I'm only safe in him. David in Psalm 51 cried out under this conviction. He said this, have mercy on me, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities. For I know my sins, my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And this is his cry by faith for grace. It's this, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's his plea. That can only be had through Jesus. Will you have him? And if you're a Christian and you simply say, Pastor, I've had that assurance for 45 years. From my earliest day, I say, praise God. Won't you cling to him again this morning? Let's pray again together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the free offer of your Son. Lord, we thank you for hard passages of Scripture. Oh Lord, that you would call us to study every word, every line, that we would find it all profitable. Oh Lord, take these these humble words, oh Lord, a humble exposition done by a man, O Lord, that you would sanctify it or make it powerful for us and for our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we come to the table. O Lord, that you would feed our souls. 
Oh, Lord, and that you would draw sinners near and seat us at your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.